Good afternoon and welcome to this seventh and penultimate session from the Oxford Martin School, joint with the Oxford Review of Economic Policy and the Smith School on the economics of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we had a fascinating discussion last week about the impacts of the pandemic on gender uh, with Professor Sarah Sm Smith and Almedina Sevilla. And today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Yulia Gisa from the Bank of England to talk about a tale of two crises, COVID-19 and the financial system. Now, this is an economic and a financial crisis, and we had one of those uh, just over 10 years ago. Have we learned anything? That's what we're going to find out about today. And Yulia is brilliantly positioned to take us through that. She's written a paper that you can see there at the bottom of your screen. You can click to go onto it, joint with Andy Haldane, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England. Yulia is very well credentialed here. She's had a stint at Lehman Brothers before the crisis, I should say. Uh, the Financial Times has had now 12 years, almost, I think, at the Bank of England, uh, looking at these sorts of issues as the head of international surveillance. So she's basically responsible for having identified anything that might go wrong in the global economy. And if, you know, if she didn't see it well, and we all go down, it's her fault. So she's beautifully positioned here. Uh, she has a doctorate in economics uh, from Nuffield at Oxford, so well-credentialed there as well. So Yulia is going to just tell us a little bit about her paper uh, and the differences in preparation, I guess, of the central banking and the financial system this time compared with the last crisis. And then I'm very much looking forward to getting into the nitty-gritty and conversation with her. But Yulia, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Cam. And of course, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I should start with a quick disclaimer. Um, what I am going to say are my own views, not those of the Bank of England or its committees, as you might expect. And as Cam said, I will start with a few um, remarks based on, on my paper with Andy Haldane that looks at uh, to the two crises, so the global financial crisis and the current uh, COVID-induced crisis. Now, of course, the current crisis is very much ongoing and the future outlook will very much depend on how the pandemic pans out and indeed um, what healthcare can do about that. Um, but we can draw early lessons in my view. Um, and um, what I will focus on in my remarks is the banking system and the lessons we can we can we can learn um, from the previous crisis and what, what ha we have not seen in the current crisis relative to the 2008 crisis. Um, so while COVID-19 has caused a global collapse in activities and led to many job losses, um, what we have not seen is the financial system or at least banks um, collapsing. Um, indeed, they have supported the real, um, the real economy, as I will argue. And this is in stark contrast to what we saw over a decade ago um, when banks were in deep trouble during the global financial crisis. You will recall um, that Lehman Brothers in 2008, a US uh, investment bank collapsed, but earlier rumblings were also visible in the UK with queues forming outside Northern Rock with people worried about getting their money uh, back. So a decade ago, banks were at the epicenter of the crisis. And indeed, they were the key, um, the key cause of the crisis, but also the key catalyst. And banks in many countries, including in the UK, had to be bailed out with um, taxpayers' money. 
And I had just started work at the Bank of England in 2008 um, and analyzing past banking crises was all the rage, as I can tell you. Um, but let me start by looking at what went wrong then um, before I discuss some reforms and then come back to the current shock, the COVID shock, and um, some early lessons from that. So with hindsight, banks in 2007, 8 were simply not adequately capitalized. Uh, a simple leverage ratio defined as equity over assets fell throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. And this meant that even a, a small loss on banks' assets was enough to use up um, banks' capital and render a firm insolvent. And this had been hidden to some extent by flattered ratios of capital or equity over so-called risk-weighted assets. Um, minimum levels of such capital ratios had been in place since 1988 when the Basel Committee implemented these minimum standards. Um, but banks, but not only were these minimum standards low, banks could also calculate their own risk-weighted assets. Um, and um, and of, of course, sometimes, and these fell throughout the 1990s, implying that actual capital ratios looked better than they actually were. For example, to give you an example, mortgages uh, tend to have very low risk weights um, because um, banks can use houses as collateral. However, mortgages were also at the heart of the US subprime crisis in 2008. Um, so they clearly are not risk free. And some economists had seen um, house price falls in the US coming, including actually um, economists at Lehman Brothers, who I happened to work with a few years earlier, but no one had connected the dots to banks' exposures. Um, another issue with these regulatory minimum requirements was that they were hard flaws, so they didn't really give banks any buffers. So breaching of these or getting close to these minimum um, requirements meant effectively that the banks were insolvent. And Finally, they, they didn't take into account systemic risk. So banks were very interconnected, um, but this was not taken into account um, in the calculation of the buffer. So um, regulators typically looked very much just at the individual bank. Um, and that meant that particularly large firms um, had lower capital uh, ratios than they should have really had. Um, so many a bank, turned out not to be solvent in the event of stress. But importantly, they also did not hold the liquidity to withstand stress. And back in 2008, there was no minimum liquidity requirement for banks to hold. Um, and liquidity concerns easily turned into solvency concerns. Uh, so why did it matter that the banking system was on the brink of failing um, over a decade ago? So despite unprecedented government and central bank interventions, the cost of the global financial crisis on livelihoods were huge. And banks were not only the cause of this, they also then amplified this shock by cutting back lending. And that's a, that was a classic aggregate demand externality. So cutting back on lending seemed rational for each individual bank in terms of preserving um, their precious capital. 
But collectively, it gave rise to a dev devastating feedback loop with the real economy. So firms not being able to borrow and to invest um, and potentially then driving them into insolvency and then um, raking up further credit losses for the banks. So what did we learn from this sorry, episode? Um, in the decade that followed, the Basel Committee and the Financial Stability Board, jointly with its members, set out to reform the financial system, and in particular banks, so that um, in future banks would be resilient to stress and would not, importantly, require bailouts um, from governments. So for the first time, banks now face minimum liquidity and leverage uh, requirements to address both liquidity and solvency concerns. And capital requirements based on risk-weighted uh, assets have been increased. There were also two further innovations on capital ratios. Um, first of all, the quality of capital has been um, improved. So um, there's more careful thinking about uh, risk weights but it's also now possible to bail in a proportion of banks' debt uh, in the event of stress, so to turn it into, into capital. And the second innovation was to add buffers on top of minimum regulatory uh, capital requirements to account for bank systemic risk. So each bank now holds a capital conservation buffer if you want the first line of defense. And designated authorities, typically central banks or regulatory authorities, can also set a counter-cyclical capital buffer. So this um, can increase in times in good times and then be uh, released in stress, uh, giving banks back capital that they can use to increase uh, lending. Um, moreover, systemically important banks now have to hold an additional buffer as well to account for their special role in the domestic and global financial system. And these buffers are often called macroprudential capital buffers. Um, and they, as I said, they take into account systemic risk. So look at the system as a whole rather than the individual bank. Um, in many countries, authorities have also started stress testing banks. Um, so looking at stress events and whether the balance sheets are resilient to these events. And again, these, these are really important because they help assess the resilience of banks, but also help to set appropriate capital buffers uh, for banks. And in the, bank, in the UK, um, the Financial Policy Committee has been created within the, um, the Bank of England. And it is tasked with setting the counter-cyclical capital buffer. And it does so by uh, making reference to the stress tests, for example. Um, so what does that have to do with the current shock? Um, maybe it's, it's helpful to briefly look back at the episode in March when the global impact of COVID um, on the global economy really became apparent. Um, and what, what happened in financial markets? It wasn't all plain sailing and asset prices faced sharp adjustments as the economic damage was becoming obvious. And liquidity in some key markets, including in government bond markets, which tend to be the most liquid, liquid dried up. Um, only vast amounts of central bank stimulus or intervention calmed markets down. 
But what, is, what was remarkable about this um, episode was that the core of financial markets, namely the banks, held up. Of course, the crisis is far from over, but we can observe that banks were in a position over past months to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, as Marcani, our former governor, put it. And this has helped um, to keep the econ economic damage really fo um, focus on the pandemic rather than in um, having these extra feedback loops from the financial system um, to the ec economy. One important feature here was that banks' funding costs remained low throughout the stress episode. So markets had confidence that banks were in a position to withstand the stress. And, and that is sort of one piece of evidence where we think um, market, um, banks really are in a better position now. And the other piece of evidence is that banks lend vast amounts in March as companies drew on their credit lines. And they have continued to lend, okay, yes, with the support of government guarantee schemes. But um, basically, banks were now in a position to be used as intermediaries during a, a major, um, major economic stress. Um, I think just, just also another word on stress tests. Just having run those over the last few years has again proved really helpful also to the Bank of England. We were now able to um to look at kind of look at similar stress scenarios and understand the extent to which banks would be resilient to such a deep stress and compare the current situation to the stress tests we had run. Um, and and our deputy governor John Cunliffe um, remarked earlier in the year that had a pandemic with a similar impact to what we expected the current one to have earlier on, had that occurred in 2007, banks' capital would have been wiped out. And indeed, as we saw, it, it hasn't been wiped out. Um, maybe just one more thing on a central bank response. Um, our own liquidity facilities have also come into their own. Um, banks came to the Bank of England to borrow in our indexed uh, long-term repo operation. Um, but also, we, we also put in, in place um, other uh, facilities where banks could come and get liquidity. And uh, I think that banks have come is a really good sign. It's a sign of success. Uh, there was no stigma attached. Um, and it, it's, again, helped to keep up liquidity in markets or at least to replenish it when it when it was low. Um, and a, a well-kept, um, well, it's, not a, it's clearly not a secret, but Another really important lifeline of the global economy were swap lines. So the Fed has swap lines um, with uh, other central banks, the major, major central banks, where um, central banks like the Bank of England, the ECB, um, and others can give their reserve banks access to US dollars. And again, in this crisis, US dollars were in short supply, and we saw um, banks um, going into these auctions and getting US dollars, um, and that, that was um, very helpful. And, you know, I've run these auctions myself a couple of years ago. No banks ever turned up, but they, these facilities are meant to be a backstop. So again, that they were used now was, was a good thing. So that, that was really all I had to say on, on, the, um, on, on the crisis itself. 
there, there are maybe just a few words on, on the sort of lessons, uh, very early lessons that we can draw. Um, so one is, again, around stress tests and what we, what we might learn from the current episode. We had not run a stress test based on a pandemic, so that is clearly something one could do, maybe should do natural disasters um, as well. We had one planned for climate change, and that is still still in the pipeline. Um, so clearly, that those those would be would be good. Um, the pandemic has also highlighted the growing importance of the digital world. So thinking really hard about the opportunities, but also financial stability risks, say from from fintech is on, on the agenda. And then looking back at the March episode, um, while banks held up, I think the, the limelight has again been on the non-banks, um, so financial institutions other than banks, uh, and their behavior has, has raised some questions. Um, so hedge funds, um, investment funds, money market funds, all uh, dashed for cash. Um, that's a good catchy phrase. Um, and sort of there's questions around why why they did that. And as I said before, this was only really stopped when central banks intervened massively. And of course, that can create moral hazard going forward if investors expect to be bailed out um, by central banks. So should there be a quid pro quo um, in terms of thinking about potentially regulation and the financial stability board is uh, starting to think about this. Um, yeah, that's maybe well stop for now. Take Super. No, thanks, Julia. That's really interesting. And um, we've already got five questions lined up. Uh, so those of you listening, you can click on the bottom to ask a question. Yulia uh, mentioned some various stats, leverage ratios, etc. They are accessible in her paper. The link is at the central bottom of the screen, and it's open access and, and free. So if you want to see the charts there, they're in there. Uh, and now to the even more fun bit of the Q&A. I think we're, we're at risk of going over time here, but I will, as ever, keep things on track. Um, so the fir first one from me, you've basically gone through a whole range of different shifts, interventions, policy, regulatory changes over the last 10 years designed to make the system safer. And, you know, I guess you could say so far, so good. We had a dash for cash. You had to kind of ram the system to keep it propped up. Uh, but even though you hadn't done a pandemic stress test so far, we haven't had massive financial failure. But uh, it's still potentially, you know, it's possibly not a V-shaped recovery. We'll come back onto that. So it's early days. Do you think you've done enough in the last decade? Is there more to be done? You know, how kind of twitchy are we feeling in the Bank of England about, about the crisis? Uh, is the fact that no banks have co collapsed at this point, is it proof that actually the system's robust and we're in good shape and we can rest easy, or are you still a bit nervous? I mean, of course, there's there comes a point at which um, the uh, any losses could um, exceed the capital that, that banks currently hold. And as I said, a lot is dependent on how the pandemic uh, pans out. Mm -hmm. But we have um, we have run so we we have both our central case um, forecast from our NPR the monetary policy report and that goes into the future that goes three years out into the future 
And um, we have looked at a sort of test-based stress test based on that, whether banks can withstand that scenario and, and they can easily can. So we are not concerned about that. Now, of course, there, there are downside risks to this scenario, um, but we've also run so-called reverse stress tests, kind of how bad would it have to get for banks to, um, to start looking um, like they might be getting close to their um, to their to capital levels where we might start being concerned and um, and the the macro scenarios look look vastly worse than what we are both expecting in the, the central case but I think also reasonably could expect in terms of tail risks so never say never but I think we we are we are confident that the that banks are in a very in a, in a good place. I think what is important here is this aggregate demand externality. It is very important for banks to keep lending um, throughout this. Um, if they stop lending, uh, I think we that could um, create further issues for the economy, um, and then again uh, further issues for the banks. So it is important for the banks to understand this, and it is a message that the Financial Policy Committee. Um, is really keen um, to to get out there. Okay, you know, I, guess, I guess it's your job to be ever vigilant and nervous and paranoid. So it's in some sense an unfair question. Um, but just on that on that very last point, uh, if banks were to stop lending, then we'd have a problem. <clears throat> As you said in your remarks, obviously, if you're in a recession and you're and things are not looking bright for the next you know year or two, you know maybe the vaccines don't work. We've seen a few cases of reinfection around the world, um, banks might not want to keep lending uh, and then they might become part of the problem, not part of the solution to turn Mark Carney's phrase around. How do you get them to lend when they don't want to? I mean, at the moment, we've had these government guarantee schemes. What, what, are, what are the tools? What, 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 what are the weapons that you have to force banks to keep lending if they don't want to? So I think I think the government guarantee schemes, as you said, have um, have been very helpful in this regard, um, and and then it's it's nudging nudging banks and trying to get them to understand this point. And they they have large capital buffers. Um, it is really important that these are usable. They are seen as being usable, mm-hmm. um, and and banks yeah don't don't worry about depleting them. That's yeah the that that I think is is the key. Yeah. Okay. Then now another kind of consequence of these policies that you have in place to to make sure that the system works is, I guess, it's a modern and, and souped up version of the Greenspan put. And actually, there's a question here from uh, David Calver um, that's that's relevant to this idea. Are there actors that are still too big to fail, where they know they're going to be bailed out, so they can just continue on their merry way doing many many more risky activities and and if you've got these government guarantee schemes to banks you might get them to lend but how do you kind of walk that tightrope of making sure they're not just lending merrily to anybody who's going to lose lose the money and put it into inefficient unproductive uses yeah so on on the first um are there are there still um, banks out there that are too big to fail. Um, I mean, we, we now have resolution regimes that, and that is another innovation. I didn't quite mention that, but um, r- relative to the global financial crisis, we have 
these resolution regimes that aim to make it possible to resolve banks, including the largest banks. Um, and there is evidence that uh, the implicit subsidy that large banks in particular enjoyed, so large banks enjoyed lower funding costs um, because of this implicit subsidy of being, or the expectation of markets that they would be bailed out, that this implicit subsidy is, um, is falling. Okay. has fallen since since uh, the global financial crisis that's there's quite a nice um uh liberty street economics uh from the new york fed blog post on this if anyone's interested so that that uh, is on on that so i think you know yeah i think i think um, there is evidence that we are starting to see results in terms of tackling that problem and I um, mean, in terms of so that, that is positive and good good to hear. Um, I mean, in terms of other entities that are perhaps benefiting from uh, central bank interventions that might you know might be regulated accordingly. There's a question here from Piet Jonker saying, um, you know, given that that effectively you intervened to save money market funds in March during the dash for cash, shouldn't capital ratios uh, or other regulatory interventions be applied to those sorts of funds as well are they in the firing line well i think i think that is certainly something um that is being discussed whether whether there has has to be some um i mean i i'm not sure i'd go as far as calling it regulation but some answer sort of that if if there is an expectation for central bank uh, bailouts uh, that um, some adjustments have to be made on on the other side as well. Um, mm-hmm. We so the FPC has thought about especially investment fan, funds before. There's there's a sort of le- mismatch between open so when, with open ended funds, uh, investors can get their money out immediately, but they they are not invested in necessarily li- only liquid assets. So there's sort of a, a liquidity mismatch here. Um, thinking thinking about that further. Um, so that there are there are ways to uh, to think about it. It's not necessarily capital ratios or what applies to banks, but it's also important that uh, a global solution is found on this. I think, um, and that's why it's right that the Financial Stability Board is is starting to look at this. Yeah, that, that makes sense. There's another good question uh, come through, um, in fact, from a member of our team uh, on the perverse. Uh, or potential perverse impacts of some of these shifts post financial crisis. The um, there's a, a a report beyond banks, uh, which is World Bank Review of Institutional Investors from 2018, that suggested that some of these uh, reforms, Solvency Two and uh, and the like, have actually impaired the ability or our collective ability to invest in infrastructure. You know, obviously, there's a huge amount of low-carbon infrastructure needed uh, over the coming decade, and encourage a kind of short-termism and um, you know, greater, uh, yeah, unwillingness to take these long-term, big, big sorts of risks that we know are needed. Uh, and do you think that's a problem? And and if it is, what could be done about it? Uh, yeah, it's it's not something I've personally thought about too much to be person um, to be perfectly honest. Um, I mean, it's it's always a balancing act, right? Um, regulation is necessary for financial stability and for 
macroeconomic stability. But regulation will also have some side effects. Now, whether that particular one is, is one, I, I couldn't personally say. Um, uh, but clearly, if it if it was, it's it's something we we should we should look at. Fair enough. Um, now you mentioned that you were in the process of doing a kind of climate stress test, as as, as we know. Um, you hadn't done a pandemic one. And there are various other stress tests you could imagine the Bank of England and other banks doing, whether about cyber or military or food security or whatever. And I'm not not asking about. That, but I mean, you clearly have a role in kind of thinking through these big, you know, non-financial scenarios because they have impacts on the financial system, which probably makes your job rather fun. Uh, but this is this is a build on Ray Taylor's question. Um, if you got this role in thinking through these scenarios and thinking about resilience to ab abrupt shocks, uh, perhaps say a little bit more about that, and perhaps. Is there something you can say about promoting business continuity or even nation or national uh, continuity in the event of something really, really bad going on? How far does the remit extend? I think I think that's the crux of Ray's question here. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, on um, on on stress tests that ex extend kind of from normal macro stress tests. I think, as I said before, I think those are really important um and and just to understand what the what the risks are that are out there and to make make sure the financial um, system is is stable to, um is resilient to those i think in in that sense and maybe that speaks a little bit to the previous question it's also important to extend this beyond banks to sort of system-wide stress tests that might include insurers um, and, and maybe investment funds as well. Um, in terms of the operational side, I mean, we, we are, so for banks, we are looking at the operational side and making sure that they are resilient. I believe that we have looked at cyber um, stress tests and making sure that that banks are resilient um, to that, or, or at least that um, the weaknesses are known and, and are known to banks. I think that is sort of the, the nice thing about stress tests. It's not just helping the regulators. It is also helping the institutions um, understanding where the weaknesses are. Um, so whether, you know, not sure what is meant by a, a national um, sort of contingency plan, but but I think certainly for the institutions um, involved, uh, we can we can make sure that they are uh, resilient on, on lots of different different fronts. And there's sort of a question how far the Bank of England's remit um, extends here. But Yeah, well, actually, that's a good one. Let me come on to that, because there is a question here about the extent of the remit uh, of the Bank of England. Where are we? Let me just find this one. Well, there's one from yeah, Hari Kumara, who has said, you know, given that you're now being increasingly expected to, to you know, go well beyond just simply tweaking interest rates here and there uh, and seeing what happens to inflation, is central banking just getting more and more challenging as time passes? And you know, there's an awful lot of complexity uh, that a central bank has to be mindful of to keep the whole system running. How are you guys managing that in the bank? It's certainly true uh, for the Bank of England relative to 10 years ago. Um, our remit has expanded 
vastly. So we now have um, not just, as you said, not just monetary policy, but also microprudential supervision of banks and insurers has come back into the Bank of England when it was um, with the F FSA before. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the vast expand. Um, and then added to that is now the, the systemic angle. So understanding the system as a whole, the financial system as a whole. So yes, it has become very much more complex, but it, it, that's not the case for every single central bank um, on the planet. So the Bank of England is relative. I mean, there, there are other central banks that have such a wide remit, but some central banks still very much have the monetary policy focus um, with other regulators tasked uh, with uh, financial stability and, and microprudential issues. I think the benefits of having it all um, under one roof is that one can really um, internalize externalities. Um, so and and uh, be able to look at these systemic risks, but then actually also have the power to do something about it with the firms directly. Um, but yes, it 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 has become uh, more complex. Yeah, and um, let me just continue along this angle a little bit about the about the remit shift. Um, you're working as I do on environmental economics and environmental problems. Uh, I'm often often encounter environmentalists who'd like to see a much much more active interventionist central bank. You know, green QE picking off particular directional sectors and saying, well, look, we won't have a financial system if the whole of human civilization is underwater or fried or bushfires, etc. So you know, it is within the central bank's remit to be thinking about the directionality of the economy. Now, a standard response to that is, well, hold on a moment. It's the Treasury's job to do that or the finance ministries. You know, the, the central bank is an independent authority. The Treasury is elected. If you don't like what they're doing, go and vote out the current party and deal with that in a democratic fashion. So this is kind of tricky because um, clearly the central bank does have um, or does have now a mandate to think about climate in a way that it didn't a decade ago because it's relevant to these core issues of financial stability and uh, macroprudential regulation. But should we be going further? And if so, how much further? You know, I, I gather, I think it's possibly the Hungarian central bank who who is uh, adjusting their um, uh, their policy instruments to favor green lending. Could you ever see that happening more widely around the world? Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so so there's various angles here, right? Um, as you said, I think that one key way where we can influence this debate is by making sure that the financial system is cognizant of the risks and um, and addresses them. And through that can also make sure that businesses, so businesses they invest in, the financial investors invest in, um, change, change their behavior. So I think that is a key direct way um, where we can influence incentives of the private of of the private side of the economy, which ultimately is much more powerful than anything I think we can do. But you mentioned green QE. I mean, there the issue is that the MPC um, has typically, or the, the power from QE is to do it at scale. 
And at scale means that we have typically bought government bond um, yields. Um, we have we have bought some corporate bonds, uh, but the universe out there is not huge in terms of sterling corporate bonds. Um, so while one can talk about kind of greening that portfolio, and I believe um, that the bank has said that we would start talking to the Treasury about this, um, that could be a possibility. But as I said, it's it's a relatively in relative terms. Um, smallish portfolio, but ultimately it is for the Treasury to give the MPC such a remit. So our remit um, is for the economy as a whole. Uh, we don't, do not look at kind of to favour individual um, firms that so we, we, we would have to do anything kind of jointly with, with the government or take our cues from that in terms of remit changes. Yeah, and in a sense, that's the answer I expect. Um, the the best kind of counter to the position I think that you've just uh, put forward that I can that I've come across at least is that um, QE one way or another isn't neutral. You know, you can you can trace the effects that certain parts, certain people, certain you know, you may not intend it's not intended to be biased. But the consequences of just buying up lots of government bonds do have a differential impact on savers versus, um, you know, those in debt or investors or et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, given these distributional consequences, shouldn't you be more cognizant of them? I guess that's the strongest um, critique. But I'm taking you some way away from our current discussion. So feel free to say no thank you, Cameron. Are you are you after the, the sort of distributional consequences more generally of, of yeah, well, would would you ever be thinking about how the either distributional consequences? I mean the, the conversation we had last week about the distributional impact of COVID on, on on women, you know, is that something that's simply not in the central bank's mandate? You know, it's a treasury issue, it's an elected democratic issue. Or is it something that you at least perhaps could keep an eye on, whether whether it's the green agenda, women, or whatever, any of these agendas? Uh, how, how much do you think about them? I think we are we are clearly aware of them, and um, but it's not really. Again, I don't think it's for the Bank of England and unelected technocrats to really do anything on the distributional side. Um, but right. okay. having, I mean, having said that, I, I don't, I'm not actually, you know, what, what our job is to make sure that the economy functions and that, um, say that we, we um, make sure that recessions aren't as deep as they otherwise we would be by loosening monetary policy and through that create opportunities uh, for, for everyone really. Um, and our research does suggest that had it not been for QE following the global financial crisis, um, unemployment would have been much higher. Um, so I think it's false to say QE just benefits the rich because it it, work, it, it increases asset prices. No, it, it helps everyone in, in the economy. And, and there is research out there that shows that it helps both young households through income channels and, and older households through wealth channels. Um, okay. Interesting. That's uh, I'm sure that's a point which uh, ma many of those who critique QE haven't taken on board. So thank you for that. Um, let me let me take us back a little bit more closer to the the current question at hand and the pandemic. And and there's a question here upvoted by 
David Vines, who um, who you may recognize that name. Uh, why have loans to firms in the current crisis not been made income contingent with repayment due only if the firm survives? I guess there's a question about how you would get repayment if the firm didn't survive anyway, but uh, but there's the question for you. What, what do you think about these broader question about um, encouraging, I guess, more sophisticated and contingent lending practices? Well, I think a, a, an important thing in the middle of the uh, crisis induced by the, the by COVID. So we're talking here March, April, May was to get schemes off the ground quickly and to get money and lending out there out to the businesses that needed it quickly. Um, any if you if you try to design clever schemes that that try to be you know have specific incentives attached to them that will in inevitably take longer um so i think i think that was again that that was sort of speed was of the essence here and i think cam your point is an important one how would you how you would you um then get the money back anyway um so i think the point was to get the money to as many firms as needed it um and hence also the government guarantees um, on on these schemes uh, that mean that banks didn't have to go through lengthy um, credit checks, for example. And, you know, the government is expecting to lose money on these on these schemes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a question um, directly related to this, just a new one from Isha uh, on the issue of where some of these tail risks really lie at the end of the day. I mean, in a sense, a lot of the regulatory changes in the last 10 years has been to um, push the resilience onto the private sector, whether it's the financial system or, or banks or, or you know, less so non-banking institutions. And to say, look, you guys have got to get better at your buffers. You've got to be ready for these sorts of events. It's your job to withstand these shocks. I guess an alternative position, which Isha's not pushing, but she's kind of asking here, couldn't you say, well, guys, just go about your business in a really efficient way, not a resilient way, you know, and, and you can be fragile. You can be robust as you like because the government is going to sort these tail risks out when they arise. So I've just put two extreme positions. I mean, I guess in a sense the question really is how much of this risk sharing, where, where do you draw the line on the risk sharing for these sorts of tail risks and we've moved it since the financial crisis towards it being shared with the private sector and your answer previously is that's fair because they were getting a kind of positive externality from the the greenspan putter it's an equivalent but could you say that actually the private sector is not well placed to either anticipate or manage these risks so the needle could swing back and government should just bear more of it yeah very very interesting question i mean um I think we've seen after the uh, global financial crisis uh, that there was a lot of public backlash about against banks being bailed out by mm. government taxpayer money being used to do that. So, and and you know, I mean, this is certainly very much my personal view, but you can then spin that further into what what that's done to our political systems. Um, so, I I think. I think that that would potentially be quite dangerous just in terms of the perception of seeing governments continuously 
a bailout. I think that's what you then would have to do if you don't want to create this doom loop of banks failing to lend to the real economy and making things worse. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's fair enough. Now, I wonder if I might go a little bit more broad for a moment here. So um, it seems to me that the practice of macro and the practice of central banking has changed rather considerably in the last decade since the financial crisis. I mean, you yourself have just outlined quite a large number of new things that you're now doing that you weren't doing before. When we had the financial crisis, the other editors of the Oxford Review of Economic Policy and I got together, led by David Vines, whose question you just answered, and asked ourselves the question, well, where is the new theory going on here? Because when we had the last Great Depression, you know, uh, new swathes of valuable economic theory emerged and many of the Keynesian ideas that we have in place today emerged then. And David Vines himself is editing, has edited, and will be uh, publishing a new issue on uh, macroeconomic theory. So, Yulia, just given that you're at the kind of the bleeding edge of this, the cutting edge of it, do you think that the practice is kind of outpacing the theory? Are you going back to academic papers and so on to work out what you should do here? Or are you guys just having to think, look at the data and make up policy as you go, seemingly doing a very good job so far. But you know, how, how is this kind of balance between theory and practice post-crisis playing out? Yeah, very, very interesting um, question. Uh, I mean, I think we have seen quite a few, uh, well, advances in, in the academic literature uh, since the global financial crisis. Um, I'm not sure, as you say, I'm not sure it's taking us into a completely new direction. So I think a lot has been sort of refining approaches that were used before, for example, with DSGE models, you know, putting financial frictions in. So, so you might, um, might explain what DSGE uh, is to some of our listeners. Yeah, so uh, macro workhorse models, if you want, um, dynamic stochastic equilibrium models, uh, which are big, uh, big models that try to um, capture micro behavior of agents in, in the economy. Um, uh, through through uh, various relations, but I think that the key how they how these models tend to do it is through is assuming um, that agents are rational. So they they um, each agent behaves the same way in a in a rational way, and I think that is something that the crisis, the global financial crisis, has really called into question. And there have been approaches with heterogeneous agent models, I think, over the past um, decade or so, last few years, which which are showing a, a new direction. Um, so I think that that's an interesting area to watch. I think in terms of our work, yeah, I mean, it's very data driven. Uh, we, we really very much look look at the data, what, what that tells us. Um, and in that respect, um, econometric advances are, are really helpful. But again, often what we use is not necessarily um, sort of the, the latest cutting edge, but it's it's vector autoregressive models um, where we where we just look at a time series of, of data and the relations between between the data points um, and and the different different variables. So I think I think 
it, it, it's really interesting. I, I mean, we have, as I said, I think that the key innovation in financial regulation over the last decade has been this macroprudential approach, this of looking at the system as a whole. Mm. Um, and there is literature now kind of looking at the interaction of different policies, monetary policy, macroprudential policies, and so on. But there is a there is a long way to go and really understanding how the different parts of the economy uh, work work together. Um, so certainly um, would be would be interested to to see more on that um, from the academic side. Well, you will, and, and the new issue on macro will be out uh, in a matter of a month or two. So look out for that, uh, Julia, and those at the bank and those listening. Uh, and if you're sitting there thinking, I've still got no idea what a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model is or a vector autoregressive uh, model, then um, have a look at the Oxford Review's previous uh, special issue on macro that David Vines edited, and, and that will take you through some of those questions. Now, we're fast running out of time. We've had a very large number of questions. We've still got a large number of questions open. Uh, so, Yulia, you're really triggering huge amounts of interest here. Um, I just, before diving back in and covering the remaining questions, probably superficially or, or not at all, I just wanted to get your sense on the future economic outlook. So we've had uh, big reports in the press of the chief economist, Andy, your co-author, um, saying it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. As I understand it, the press has also noted that um, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the bank, uh, doesn't think it's going to be V-shaped. Obviously, Andy didn't say it would be. He said it could be. And in a sense, he's, of course, completely correct at the time. It could have been. Um, but do you have a personal view, let me put it that way, uh, about how long, how bad is this going to be? Um, uh, how many millions of unemployed people will we have? And you know, when we all go back to life as usual, if ever, what are your thoughts? Well, of course, as I said at the start, it, it really depends on what happens with the with the pandemic. Um, I, I think our, I think my best guess for now is, you know, yes, we've seen the start of a V recovery, but I think we're also seeing that tail off. So it's not a symmetric V, if you want, um, just to to add to the terminology here. Uh, so. We are still clearly on a path to recovery, um, but when we will get back to the level that of GDP, of output that we have seen pre-COVID, um, I think is, is unclear. And I think the, the longer we are seeing waves and more rising, again, numbers of cases rising, then dropping off again, then rising again, the, the more often that happens, the more drawn out this recovery will be. Um, and I think that it is likely that we will see some scarring in the economy. Um, so by that, I mean that we won't get back to the path of GDP that we had predicted before the crisis hit. Um, because you know, because of unemployment firms being lost to, to the economy, um, some workers not finding it easy to find new jobs, that, that sort of thing. Um, and the extent to which I think is, is really uncertain. So we, we have not, not, we don't have a good handle yet on um, how much of the scarring to expect. But again, I think the longer this lasts, uh, the larger the scarring is likely to be. 
Um, but yeah, so I think for now, recovery is happening. But of course, a rising number of cases is, is likely to slow that again. Yeah. Um, I think we, we are seeing that it's not just restrictions uh, that mean economic activity is uh, curtailed. It is also people's behavior. Um, so as, as case numbers rise, even even with no further restrictions, you see um, you see we, we look at some faster indicators like mobility um, across across countries, and you do see that tailing off again. Mm. There, there are differences across countries, um, but uh, but the pattern is is pretty clear. Well, these things are, are always expressed in letters, aren't they? So whether it's an L-shape uh, recovery or a U-shape recovery or a V-shape recovery or a W-shape recovery, you know, maybe the second wave gets, puts us back down into the trough again and we're into a W. I heard a new one the other day. It's something called a K-shape recovery, uh, which is when you recover, but some people do very well and some people do very badly. And actually, given that we know the scarring of those just entering the workforce, you know, the young seem to be particularly bad. You could argue that maybe we're facing something like a W um, blended with a K-shaped recovery. But anyway, there's probably enough on that unless you really want to uh, come back on letters and recoveries. I'll take that as a no. Um, sorry. Uh, the, the last one of mine, I'm sorry, I'm abusing my chair's position here, um, especially given time's running out. I just wanted to ask you a question about inflation because uh, it is is it what what the bank does think about obviously one of the things and you know we're having big um, big government spending big deficits and uh, your big borrowing what do you think the risks are that after all of this stimulus into the economy that once we pull out of the W or the K or the whatever it's going to be, um, we have an inflation problem to manage. I mean, what I would say is that inflation across the world, or at least across advanced economies, has been very low for a long time. In fact, since uh, at least the global financial crisis. And we, we saw, of course, after the global financial crisis, a lot of government spending as well, and similar arguments were advanced then. And this didn't lead to an increase in inflation. In fact, more the opposite. Um, and the other thing I'd say is, if you did see inflation creeping up, that's why you've got the Bank of England and other central banks to keep that in check. Um, so obviously it is something uh, that the MPC is looking at and should the need arise. Um, I mean, the, it would, it if it's induced by government spending, it should also then, be related uh, to economic activity picking up. Uh, so you know, then it, it's pretty clear cut what the what the MPC would do in such a situation. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let me give you a kind of smorgasbord of the remaining questions. Given that we've only got a few minutes, you can pick which one you might want to answer. So the, there was one uh, about planning for a, a stress test when there's volcanic eruptions that wipe out summer and the sun. It's one about the role of the bank uh, in a world that is post-growth. You know, if we if we hit limits to grow, I mean, I, I have very strong views about this, but um, but you know, would would your role be different? Uh, there's uh, a question about non-financial, uh, sorry, non-bank financial institutions, and you know, they're always there, lurking in the background, possibly causing trouble. 
at some point, how do we get these guys under control? It's uh, my paraphrasing of Roger Burrett's question. Uh, one about sustainable investing uh, and COVID and the green recovery. And as you know, we've done some work on this. It's, it's in this issue that, that you're in on the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. Um, bunch of questions about distribution effects and greenwashing, which in a sense we've already touched upon. One about Brexit uh, and how do we think about Brexit and the pandemic as you know, dual shocks. Uh, and uh, and the last comment is, what does an asterisk-shaped recovery look like? Ray Taylor, you've completely got me there. I've got no idea. I doubt Yulia does either. So of that set of questions, would you like to pick up any of those or, or just make some con concluding remarks? Um, I mean, maybe, maybe on the... Um sort of uh, what was the phrase growthless no that's not quite right but yeah, growth or post-growth world yeah post-growth um I, I mean i think we will always be in a world of economic fluctuations um so i think uh that there will always there will be um there will always be a role for cyclical policies be that fiscal or monetary policies um that's that's my view on on that one um and then on on the non bank one, I mean, I think I think we've we've covered that to some extent as well. Um, I think, uh, yeah, they they are they are in the back, background, sometimes in the foreground, as in, in March, and and clearly something to to think about there. Um, I think, yeah, maybe on on Brexit, I think we'll we'll have to see. Obviously, it, the, the negotiations are still ongoing. Um, it, it is interesting to think about what effect brexit will have on the economy and how it's related to uh to the COVID crisis and you can think about you know which sectors would be hit by either shock and that tells you whether it's additive or or not um that's sort of an interesting way to think about it i think um maybe maybe i'll end on on that one it's been been really interesting um very thought-provoking lots of good questions well, we can rely on an Oxford Martin School audience to hit you with good questions. I, I know uh, Andy has always appreciated coming up for lectures. I'm not sure he's always been delighted by all of the questions uh, that he's been hit by when he comes here. And I dare say that you weren't delighted by all of them today, but you did an admirably diplomatic job of answering them. Well done. Thank you for your time. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in again and for listening. As I said, this is the penultimate talk, talk number seven in the series of eight. Uh, we are working on the eighth talk. It's with Mariana Mazzucato, uh, who, again, has a paper in this issue of the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. As you'll know, she's been doing very interesting work on the entrepreneurial state uh, and thinking about the role of government across many areas, not just innovation, but also in times of stress like this. So when we have a date uh, for her talk, which will be with Charles Godfrey, uh, the director of the Oxford Mountain School, we will let you know. It'll go up on the website. But it remains for me to thank you, Julia. Very insightful. Enjoy the conversation. Uh, and keep up the good work because we need you to be spotting those disasters ahead of time and making sure the financial system is ready to cope with them. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.